Well, I have the pleasure, even more of a pleasure now since I've actually heard him, <laughs> the first service, to introduce someone that you probably all know because the, the Pascals have been supported by RBC for uh, many, many years. And yeah, I'm, I'm just blessed and so excited about what he gets to bring to you all now because if there is anything that, that you're going to walk away from this morning is you're going you're gonna to see a man who, who has a heart for people, who has a heart for refugees. And that is what they are doing in Eastern Europe, based more in Hungary, but reaching out to all sorts of refugees that the Lord is bringing to Eastern Europe. And the Lord is using them mightily. And I'm very excited about the missionary, the Pascal family that is here this morning with us. And if you do not have one of their updated prayer cards, I would encourage you to, to get one. They will be at the hub. You can also sign up for their um, prayer prayer letters and, and, and other ways to keep in touch with them and just commit yourself to praying for this very, very needful ministry that the Lord is doing overseas in Eastern Europe. So, Matt, please come up and share with us. Hi, I'm Matt Pascal, and my wife Nicole and I serve in Budapest, Hungary with United World Mission. Uh, I serve primarily with uh, refugees and migrant peoples who have come here to Europe, and my wife Nicole is working uh, in a ministry called The Garden House, which is providing spiritual formation, retreats, and counseling ministries for mission workers. Uh, I'm part of two mission networks uh, here in Europe. One is called the Refugee Highway Partnership, and the other is called How Will They Hear? And the first one it focuses on helping grassroots workers that are based here in Europe to how to minister and disciple and develop leaders among refugees. So I organize our annual conference, which involves about 200 people in 30 different countries, and I'm on the, the executive team for planning that event, as well as developing partnerships for placing new workers. And that's where How Will They Hear is a, a collaboration of 12 mission agencies bringing new ministry workers into Europe to focus on refugees and migrant peoples here in Europe. For the past year and a half, I've been working here at the Budapest Garden House. We are a soul care center, and we minister to global workers and national believers throughout all of Europe. We offer space here to encounter the Lord in new and deeper ways. And with that, to learn more about our own souls and heart and our journey that the Lord has us on, and come together in community. Those three things offer a pathway to transformation. We all can take steps to grow closer to the Lord. And that's the kind of space we're offering here. In the midst of movement and migration of peoples into Europe, it's a strategic time. And we see a huge need to raise up leaders. We also see a need of churches that are willing to, to embrace those and reflect the diversity and the multicultural makeup of their cities. And we also see the need of workers, mission workers, that need to be equipped and encouraged to really do sustainable long-term ministry with very hurt and needy people. We're already seeing people serving in places of real need, and we're seeing lives that are being changed. We are seeing churches taking risks to welcome the stranger, to love their neighbor, and to share the life-changing message of the gospel. Nicole and I thank you for your continued prayer and support as we serve here and minister in Europe.
to, uh, to be back at Rancher Baptist. It's been a few years, and uh, this is the latest picture that uh, we take. Of, uh, Nicole, Nicole is in the back here. Where are you, honey? There she's, she came uh, with the two kids, two of our four. So here's the, the full tribe as he held up the prayer cards. Jake is uh, 21. He is uh, doing an internship in engineering, so he's back in New York. Clarissa just left this morning at 8 for uh, Indiana. She also has a summer internship. And then Shane and Adelaide are home with us. They're 12 and 14. So, uh, yeah, we've been in Hungary now for four years, and um, I'm home for about six months. Uh, For every five years you live in Hungary, as an expat, you need to be out of country for six months. Otherwise, you need to pay Hungarian income tax, which I don't want to do. So um, (laughs) before that, we were seven years in West Africa, and uh, before that, mobilizing for mission primarily among uh, unreached peoples, uh, Muslim peoples. And Rancho has transitioned with us through those three major uh, life transitions, from uh, learning language in France to Africa to now Hungary, and uh, we appreciate your prayers. I also appreciate every once in a while I get an email from your missions team or Shane, somebody from church saying, hey, we're we're praying for your family this week. How can we pray for you? And uh, it's really neat to have just sort of an unsolicited request that comes in and it reminds me, oh yeah, people do read our prayer letters, they do care about what we're doing, they have a heart not only for the local area they live in, but also for people they may never meet, but who are part of the Great Commission. So we appreciate this is a, a, a praying church, but also a mission church. And you, I know it's a mission church because very few churches these days will let a missionary actually preach from the pulpit. So you, you don't understand how, how much this is a... a, a a privilege to to uh, to come, and it, it sets your church apart a bit because uh, uh, some churches just won't do that. So I really appreciate that. I get some mission moments and minutes, but this is a time to to focus on what God's doing in the world. Well, what we have is a lot of work that still needs to be done. There's been a lot of gains. The gospel has gone out through digital, through all kinds of means. People, there's greater access to the gospel than ever before in human history. Uh, Jesus' films have been translated in thousands of, of languages, but we still have work to do. So out of the 7.3 billion, 7.2 billion people, 2.4 billion are still unreached. So it's not quite halfway, but we are making gains. We have 2.4 billion people who could not hear about Jesus in their own culture or language unless we continue the task of world evangelization. And then of that, there's 0.25 billion who are unengaged, meaning we still need to send workers or missionaries or someone who knows the gospel into these unengaged people. And we have been called as missionaries, as part of your mission outreach, to reach the unreached and the unengaged. That's our, that's our calling. That's, that's what we've been doing for all these years. So how many of you heard of the 1040 window before? Is that a familiar term? See, I told you you're a mission-minded church. You know this thing. So 10 degrees to 40 degrees north of the equator, you can fit almost all of that 2.4 billion people inside those, that parameter of the swash of land. So we, when we were in Senegal, we were at 14 degrees north of the equator in Senegal. But you take North Africa and the Middle East, that's the Muslim world. You go over into uh, India, that's the Hindu world. You go into China, Buddhist world. Uh, Thailand, and, and obviously there's, there's a mix, and there's also the atheist world, as you have one of the largest atheist nations. So 
You put all the unreached peoples into that area. We still need to pray. We still need to give. We still need to go into the window if we're going to finish the task of reaching the world for Christ. But I want to tell you, I don't even know when this window idea was popularized. What year? How long do you think it's been? 10 years? 20? Let me give you the answer. 1974. Ralph Winter, U.S. Center for World Mission, and Billy Graham, and a bunch of other agencies said, look, we can't just keep sending missionaries here, there, and everywhere. We need to send them strategically. So let's purposely send them into this window. And it's just been a great tool for mobilizing the church to give, to go, and to pray for this part of the world. But I want to tell you, church, uh, God has answered your prayers. He has actually done, since 1974, a major Windows upgrade. He's taken, I'm serious, he's taken people out of that window to greater access to the gospel than ever before. We still need to go in, but there are many places in the countries that are listed there that we, especially as Americans, cannot get in as missionaries. So God is bringing them out into places like Germany and Netherlands and, and even here in the U.S. Here's a picture, if we could fade the lights a little bit because of the glare. Uh, this is a picture of global migration. All the red and orange and yellow shows where most of the migration of the world is happening. And I'm going to give you a statistic about how many people are on the move. But you can see all of the red. You can see all of the yellow, all the orange. And you can see the direction, the flow. It doesn't even list Arge uh, Venezuela next to Argentina. That's had a huge migration flow. With the, I mean, they're going to collapse unless God does something amazing in that country. But um, you lay the 1040 window across that, and that just—I'm trying to show you that God is moving people out of his, out of that window into greater gospel access. We experienced this in personal terms in the city of Budapest, where we live. We were here in the States in 2000, uh, summer of 2015. When we flew back to Budapest, there were, at one point, two to 3,000 people showing up in this train station to be fingerprinted to start their asylum process in our city. It got so backed up, there was 25,000, I think, people waiting in this. Uh, underneath, there's a little... Uh, um, kind of a, a rest area, and people were in tents and sleeping bags. Babies were being born. It was, a, it was crazy. So our church was involved, engaging, trying to bring food, trying to bring water, um, and the, finally the dam broke. And about, uh, this is late August, early September, um, about 20,000 of them, uh, once uh, Germany said, we will process them. We will actually make sure everyone comes in through legal means, and have everyone start that process. So they, they went through, and they said, we're going to walk to Austria. Now, we can drive to Austria. I've drive pretty fast. I get there about two and a half hours to Vienna. These people were so desperate, they were willing to walk it. I mean, and they had already walked and trained and bussed and taken boats across the Mediterranean to get to this point. Uh, just shows the desperation. Here's a picture of an Afghan family. Uh, that just shows the desperation of this young family wanting to get to where they wanted to go, and it's just the Hungarian government could not handle it. Um, globally, there's 6.5 uh, million, just over that, 65.6 million refugees and displaced people in the world. 
Um, of that, most of them, 40.8 uh, million, are internally displaced. So there are people, maybe there was a war in that country, but they've moved to the north or the south. They're still within the borders of their country. So the technical world is, is an IDP. They're internally displaced people. That happens a lot of places because, one, they, they have plans to just move back when maybe the war settles down or whatever, um, or they just don't have the wherewithal to make the long journey beyond their borders. The smaller percentage, 21.3 million, are people who have left their country of origin and have gone to another country. So, for example, in Lebanon, for every Lebanese, or for every one, uh, every two Lebanese, sorry, there is one Syrian refugee. That's the, the number. It's, it's over, a, it's 1.5 million or some crazy number. Uh, in Turkey, there are about 3 million refugees. Um, Europe, across all the countries of Europe have only received about between 1.5 and 2 million new refugees. But not all of them have come in as asylum seekers. So we, we in Europe have not received the bulk load of this latest wave of refugee. But I just wanted to show this in terms, this is a global phenomenon. You saw the map. It's happening everywhere. Latin America, Asia, Africa, Middle East. Where there are war, there will be displaced people. And this is the highest number of displaced people since the following of World War II, which wrecked all kinds of countries. And you had Jews, and you had people, Germans, and you had all kinds of people, borders, and it was just a huge mess. And in 1951, the UNHCR was created to try to re reunite and resettle people who had been forcibly displaced. Well... As you know, World War II was not the end of wars. And we, in our country, we've received refugees from the boat people in the 70s uh, to uh, Somalians uh, to, in the Balkan crisis, the, the uh, people from the Balkan region. And now this is the latest wave of many waves, of many wars. And so we, as missionaries, are trying to figure out how do we share the gospel in the midst of massive migration, one in every 113 people in the world are either a refugee, an asylum seeker, or internally displaced. So, church, we have, you and I, we have a job to do. There's, there's going to be no end in, and this is going to be the next, one of the big mission assignments for the church, is how do you love, how do you love your neighbor, the foreigner among you, the alien, those who are in the midst of this? massive migration. So this picture was taken, a portrait of Lesvos, and I just showed up there because after July 4th this year, when you have your celebration, pray for us. I'll be leading a team of Americans and some from the from UK to Lesvos. Uh, we'll be ministering to about, right now there's currently between six and 7,000 refugees in Lesvos. Uh, and then we'll be going to Thessaloniki, Greece, at a, to a uh, refugee care center and two weeks, pray that the people going would be transformed, that some of them, some of the young adults, there's a guy from Vista, Stephen. Pray that Stephen, uh, God captures his heart and that he gives him some clarity about where God would have him serve. Um, pray for those that are serving, but also pray for the families, the kids, the moms, the young men that we're going to be ministering to, that we would show the love of Christ and, and love and listen to them in their, in their story and their journey. Our vision, our ministry vision, 
is to be a catalyst to, to create a dynamic network of national Christian leaders in Europe that are reach, doing a few things, okay? Sharing the gospel, planting churches, and raising up new leaders. And it's, it's really, really exciting. We're seeing this happen. There are, for example, Afghans coming to Christ. There are Syrians coming to Christ. There are even Somalians coming to Christ, a group that has never integrated anywhere they go. And there is now a new Somalian Christian network of about 650 believers. And the, the couple, the Somali couple that's shepherding them, live in Nottingham in, in the UK. They minister and disciple people over the internet. Uh, I call it discipleship. Uh, but they, they just have this amazing network and they baptize people, they put testimonies. It's crazy what's happening with the Somalians. For, so you may have supported SIM missionaries for years. They never saw fruit, never, until our generation right now. And it was because of displacement. Diaspora, kind of a fancy word, or diaspora, either one is fine with me. Have you ever heard that word? It's sort of a new word being kicked around in mission circles because it used to be, I'm a missionary, I'm going to, for example, Hungary, and my mission is to reach Hungarians. Okay? Now we have missionaries that are going to Germany, living in Berlin, and they're reaching Syrians or Iranians. And then some of those Iranians will actually go back to Iran and reach Iran as well. So it's a very interesting mix, but we're following the diaspora and the movement of people. It used to be applied to the Jews, the the scattering, the exile, was the first kind of major diaspora. Uh, And there's a verse in scripture I won't read, but... Um, this is now applied to lots of people, that ethnic people who have been moved around uh, from the Armenians uh, to you've had uh, the African diaspora, the Nigerians. I asked one Nigerian at our church in Hungary, um, I said, how many, hung- how many Nigerians are there in the world? He's like, I have no idea. And I had done a little bit of research. I said, it's probably, I've, I've read about six million Nigerians live outside of Nigeria. He says, well, that's only the ones that have been counted. And he says, what we say in Nigeria is if there's not a Nigerian living in your city, then there's something wrong with your city. Um, but the Nigerians are a huge group. Um, the Irish. And I'm just curious, like looking across this group here, this, this church family, how many would say your descendants were immigrants? You're the son or daughter or granddaughter. Look, what are some of the countries represented here? Norway. Norwegian, okay. Me too, my, my great-grandma, yeah. Portugal. Where? Estonia. I love Estonia. I was just there last November. Beautiful city and country. Where? Russia. Russia. Okay. Cuba. Ireland. Wales. China. Germany. Another Ireland. Croatia. Croatia. I love Italy. We could go around and around. Now, how many are your first generation? Like, you you moved here recently as an immigrant. Okay, so one. From China? All right, welcome. Most of us are second, third, or we we can trace back. Do Ancestry.com. That's, that's, we're, we are a, a, a nation of immigrants. But what makes a diaspora person is someone who may live here or live in a country, but their idea of home is somewhere else. They have home is, homeland is another place, not just here. 
And how do you minister to people whose home is not where they live? Well, um, this is just a couple descriptives of what a diaspora person, a diaspora group. Uh, they might have left forced or voluntary from their country of origin, search of work, trade, or to escape conflict. So there's a variety of reasons, push and pull factors for their departure. But they have this collective memory of what home was like back in their homeland. Okay? Um, they have a continuing connection to their country of origin. So you'll see sometimes, especially in New York City, Little, little Italy, uh, Chinatown, little pockets where you can shop and eat and use language and be in these little... I mean, a lot of people think we're a melting pot, but we are a salad bowl. We really are kind of a variety, a mixture. You can see the apple or the, the tomatoes from the peppers and the onions and the lettuce, and we are a mixture. Now, some, over time, it be, do become a little bit more uh, assimilated, but we, many of us, many of the people who have assimilated or migrated to the U.S., their homeland is still in another place. Or, if you're like our kids, you have many homes. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but their sense of belonging is with members of their, uh, in other countries. So when I was standing in uh, Athens, um, and this is a, the mountain. Uh, I was looking at this from this point, vantage point. This is Mars Hill. And you look up to this uh, uh, towering kind of, this is the high, one of the high points in Athens. Paul was standing here on this mountain giving the sermon in Acts 17. They have a bronze kind of plaque that, that summarizes Acts 17. And I thought we could just read this together because it's really a great passage that summarizes Paul's vision when, when God called him to be the missionary to all the Gentiles he ended up in Athens, and he looked at this city through the eyes and the lens of a redemptive missionary God. And this is how he saw migration. So let's read it together. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And what I want to just, I'm going to wrap up this missions report to say that um, if we have God's mindset on refugees and migrated peoples, we will see people through the lens of a missionary God who always moves people around for his redemptive purpose. From, even from the people of Israel, some of it was punitive because they weren't being the missionaries God had called them to be, but some of it was redemptive in that he would attract people to, to, to places and move people around. And I think if we were honest with our own journey, spiritual journey, how many of you would say, it was only when God moved you from one place to another, took you from what you knew to what you did not know, that he brought you an encounter with God. How many of you have grown closer to God through movement, through being moved, either voluntarily or by force sometimes, involuntarily? Yeah. We have to trust him in new ways, in new places. So we're going to actually shift gears here a little bit 
and look at a passage of Scripture that talks about how we are, as Christians, supposed to live as strangers and aliens. In a sense, we are all to be like spiritual refugees in a good way, and I'll explain that in a minute. But let's pray together before we open God's Word and just ask Him to, to speak to us. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for how it cuts through to the heart. I thank you that it illumines like a lantern. It, it exposes things that are hidden. I, th- I thank you, Lord, that it is your voice that calls us to obedience, to holiness, to humility, to sacrifice. Lord, as our we look at our face in the mirror, may This morning, as we look at your word, may we not forget our own face, but that we would be doers of your word and not forgetful hearers. Lord, we thank you for reaching out and redeeming us and loving us. Would you speak to us today through your word in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, print or digital, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read the passage, just uh, I didn't get a chance to do that in the early service, but I want to read the key passage that's been kind of a guiding scripture for me um, in reflecting on the refugee movement. I I honed in on uh, verses 13 through 15, so if you can get there really quick, Hebrews 11. It says, in these, these, he's talking about the heroes of faith. We'll we'll focus on a couple of them this morning. All these heroes of faith died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus made it clear that they were seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As you think about this, you may have an outline in your Bible or in your bulletin. Living as an exile and a stranger, what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, it changes the way you see yourself. Before you became a Christian, it says in Scripture in Ephesians that we were alienated from God, that we were estranged from Him. If you look at Ephesians 2, just read this really quick. don't have to turn there. It says, remember at that time that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners, to the covenants of the promise. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the defining wall of hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. So our identity, how we see ourselves, 
should be radically transformed by the fact that God has adopted us into his family and he has given us a citizenship in heaven that sort of over-surpasses any other citizenship that we have. And if you've traveled to other countries or you've maybe worshipped in another church in another part of the world, you, you can quickly, or even if you have a meal with someone from another country, and you start talking about the things of the Lord. There's like a, a real sweet unity and fellowship that happens when you have people who have the same identity, the same purpose, the same calling, the same vocabulary as your own. They are believers. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a unifying factor that connects us globally. So if you came over to Senegal when we were there, and I took you to a little Serer village, and they'd bring out the djembe drums, and they'd start beating on them, and everyone's dancing. Because you're a believer, you'd probably say, well, I don't know how to dance like that, but I love Jesus. And you'd get in the middle, <laughs> and you'd dance in the dirt. Um, and it's a really amazing thing to, to realize the diversity of the body of Christ. It's, really, it's, it's so awesome to see, think that the last, one of the last visions that John had in Revelations it says he stood before the, the Lamb. He said, and he saw all tongues, tribes, and nations worshiping before the Lamb. That means that in heaven, we retain color. We retain ethnicity. We retain race and identity. There's something eternal about who God made us that stays with us forever. It's noticeable. We don't just kind of merge into this angelic glory of nothingness. Our new bodies will have some element of culture. That's how God made us. So, but, but our culture, our ethnicity, isn't our primary identity. It's secondary. Our main identity as Christians is to be, is to be part of his kingdom, a kingdom identity. So living as a stranger changes our view of ourselves because our identity is not based on where we came from, but our identity is based on where we are going. It's not from where you belong, it's from where you are going. And this changes the way you see yourselves and the way you see others. You know, we live in Hungary that is, uh, as you know, pretty, pretty nationalistic, but it's really struggled with their core identity. So for hundreds and hundreds of years the Hungarians have tried to guard their ethnic identity. And one of the struggles within the Church of Hungary is that most Hungarian Christians see themselves as Hungarians first, Christians second. I'm seeing this also in Germany, unfortunately. We're seeing a rise of of neo-Nazism and and Arianism and and this, this sort of nationalistic pride that is actually not only threatening the refugee and the and the foreigner, but I just read an article last week that the German government is telling the Jewish people to not wear the yarmulke because they can't control Pegida and these other right-wing nationalist groups. So nationalism, if your core identity is nationalistic, it can, it can lead you in some places that are really counter to your identity in Christ. It really can. Our identity is citizens of heaven, number one. And then our secondary identity, whether it's whatever our passport country is. I have a cool story. Um, in 
the height of the refugee crisis. Everyone was, it was, it was a, amazing, amazing things were happening. And also a lot of controversy. In uh, Germany in 2016, so three years ago, um, a, a missionary I knew, Stephen Beck, he's, he's a really great guy, and he, um, he decided to organize a prayer meeting for pastors because they were wrestling with this. What is our responsibility for this influx, and how do, what do we do? Well, they met in this church called Matthaus Kirsch, which I believe in German means Matthew's Church, um, and it's near Frankfurt. And they chose this location because in 1939, 620 German pastors met in that church and in that same sanctuary, and they were discussing Hitler's insistence that the German church be purified of all non-Aryan people. And I believe you probably know what the result was of that decision. Led them in some very, very horrific uh, results. Well, here they were, next generation. Same church, same sanctuary. They had 160 pastors gathered. And they asked themselves this question. Is the gospel for Germans or is the gospel for everyone? That was the question of the morning. And as they went around and they shared what God was doing in their churches because of people who had come to Christ through migration, through trauma, through all these things, and had really given life and movement in their church, they were, and listening to the voice of God, they realized that to fulfill the great commandment to love your neighbor and to fulfill the great commission to reach all peoples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, to fulfill those two, they were going to prayerfully and humbly try to get it right this time in history. And the 160 pastors, they ended up in a prayer of forgiveness and repentance, calling on God to bring the nations into their churches. So this mosaic, it's called mosaic, and you can look it up on the internet, but the mosaic uh, church, Mission Mosaic, is one of the, I think, shining examples of churches that are sort of going against the culture, countercultural, and finding their identity, not in their Germanness, but in their Christ-like calling. And, and God is doing really, really cool things through the mosaic church. Well, in Hebrews, we see a similar uh, situation with Abraham and Sarah. As they were called out from Ur, from near Asia Minor in Turkey, or modern-day Turkey, God called them and, and really had a major, major identity shift. He gave them some promises that he would bless them. He told them they would be the father. He would be the father of many nations. And he'd have a whole new land with new boundaries New, new identity. And it says in verse 8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he was to receive it as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that, was found, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah received, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and, and him, as good as dead, were born descendants of many, as the stars of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. 
Abraham and Sarah left home, trusting God. They obeyed, it says in verse 8. They made a home in the promised land, and they looked forward to this new city. They had eyes of faith. It was the faith that was like a telescope. They looked beyond their temporal existence to this picture of what God had promised them, and it enabled them to see themselves differently. Not as high and mighty, but particularly called out by God for blessing. He knew they were to be a blessing to the nations. So we in our Christian life, sometimes we have to live in that here. We have to wait in the here and now. We have promises maybe God has given you. Maybe it's you have a a family member or a loved one who's been in the far place. You've been praying for years, and you don't know if they're ever going to return back home. Well, the eyes of faith, like Abraham and, and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah, enable you to not look at your immediate situation, but to telescope out and say, Lord, I'm going to stay faithful to your promise. I'm going to live like a stranger in an exile, and I'm going to love them until you bring them home. I'm going to stay faithful. You might have other promises, but what the promises that are unfulfilled, our relationship with God, we are looking forward to the fulfillment of that. Some of that we will not see this side of heaven. Some we will only see on the other side of heaven. And um, i just tell a quick personal story. My, I'm the oldest of four kids. Um, I have twin brothers and then a sister. We were all raised in the Christian family. All heard the same gospel. My, all went to the same vacation Bible schools. Uh, but at teen years, we all went different ways. So my brother is a pastor. My other brother for a number of years was a bartender. My, uh, I was a missionary uh, reaching Muslims. My sister married a Muslim. <laughs> so pretty different. Um, and I, for many years, didn't know how to reach my sister. And uh, the Lord told me one thing. Matt, you just need a lover. And um, you need to reach out to her. You need to build a bridge and not build a wall. So I did. We loved on her and her husband, and, and uh, their marriage ended up uh, ending about 12 years later. But at age 41, and the, her life was a wreck, uh, Sarah began to long for the God that she had heard from her youth, from her childhood. She felt estranged, she, like the prodigal. And she, and like the prodigal son says, and came into his senses. And he started heading home. And anyway, I wasn't there. I didn't lead her to Christ. I didn't pray a prayer with her. But I had lunch with her. I don't know. This is in 2013 at a restaurant in Encinitas. And just, I saw my sister for the first time home, who she was meant to be. Redeemed, broken, but healed, faithful, trusting, quoting scripture. I'm like, what is happening? And I just want to encourage you with that, that you, that you would remain faithful as well. You don't know who, what factor is going to be brought, bringing a, a family member or a loved one or a neighbor or a coworker. You don't know where you are in the chain of God's redemptive plan. But as my sister Sarah says, Matt... I had a wall around my heart, and there's nothing that could have broke through that wall except the Spirit of God. But I did see you build in a bridge, and that's very meaningful to me. 
So keep praying for your Sarahs. Keep praying for your, your, your family members. Second thing, living as a stranger changes our priorities. Let's look at one of the other heroes of faith, Moses, who was born a Jew. His, the, the family was living in Egypt as basically slave labor. <laughs> and um, got to the point where the mother put, her in, put him as a baby in, a, in the Nile and trusted his future in the hands of God, was rescued. And uh, we, we pick up the story um, in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were afraid, were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, verse 24, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting uh, pleasures of sin. For he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. So living as a stranger in an exile means that the values that you had prior B.C., before Christ, should be different values than the, the values you have now. I remember choosing as a young adult to be an engineer mainly because I, I knew I could make a lot of money. And I was in my freshman year at UC San Diego getting straight A's, but thoroughly and completely knowing this wasn't what God's plan was for me. I was dissatisfied. So I remember praying, Lord, I'll do anything this next summer, even ministry. <laughs> and about a week later, my discipler called me and says, hey, we're leading a missions trip. Uh, and I ended up going on that, and that started a whole new domino effect. But I realized that I think a lot of times we climb the ladder of success only and get about halfway up only to realize the ladder is leaning on the wrong building. Like, it's just a rat race. We're just climbing, climbing, and we've never really asked, Lord, is this your ladder? Is this going to bring you glory, or is this just about my comfort? Is these desires that I have for things and and comparing with others and around us, is that, is that really what life is about? Or do you have another calling in my life? Um, and what things, one of the things is you live as a stranger and alien, you're not afraid to let hold loosely the things God has given you because you realize, well, he gave it to me, he can take it away. And this actually isn't the most valuable thing that I have in my life. The most valuable thing can never be taken away. So it should affect how you tithe. It should affect how you, your generosity. It should affect and give you, make you be like just this radical hospitality that welcomes the foreigner, that, that goes across the street and, and does amazing things with the people around you. Because this world is not your home. Now, how many of you would say, as your, your Christian identity and your, your, your values, when you became a Christian you actually started to feel like, I don't really belong here. How many of you have been, you work co-workers all the time. I don't fit in here. Like, I don't, you don't get me. I don't think like you. I don't talk like you. I don't, I'm not in pursuit of things like you. And I'm not even looking down on you, but I just don't, I don't identify. Okay, that kind of weird feeling, it's okay. You're okay. It's good. My kids grow, have grown up in France, in Africa, and Hungary. And when they come back to the United States, sometimes they say, 
I don't really feel home here. Like my two younger will say, where's home? They'll say, Hungary. You ask my older two, where's home? My daughter, she'll say, Africa. You ask my oldest son, where are you from, Jake? And he'll say, wherever mom is cooking. So it's home is, home is wherever the Lord leads you. That changes the way you look at your belongings, the way you look at your stuff, and it, it changes the way, last thing, the way you view others. And I'll just wrap up with this. God has a mission on this earth. It's to reconcile others. We are called as his ambassadors. We have a great cloud of witnesses that have lived as strangers and aliens on earth. They died in faith. And the, the writer of Hebrews is say, don't give up. Stay faithful to your identity. Stay faithful to your calling. Stay faithful to the mission that God has given you. Because there are people in your life, you are the only missionary that can reach them. The only one. And God is wanting you, as he finishes in the next chapter, 12, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him, despising the cross, uh, he's the perfecter of our faith. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He endured opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is not your home, but you are to love those who are not yet in the family. This is not your stuff. You don't own it. God does. Your identity, it's a kingdom identity. Live in it. And then you can be like Jesus, sitting down at the right hand of God completely and thoroughly satisfied and not concerned with what happens in the world because you know he's in control. That's it. Tom. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.